welcome to Unplugged, reflecting back on round one, where no forward line, longest injury list in the competition, not a worry. A 15-point win over Fremantle, a terrific start to Ross Lyons' era mark two. Obviously, challenges still remain with the injury list not getting any smaller. In fact, it actually got a little bit bigger out of the other weekend just gone. But we hang in there. I think we're bordering on a 1,000 games of experience actually unavailable, uh, which would be quite a, an effort if we could tick over that mark. But we are one and zip. We felt that we needed to get one of these first two games just to hang in there before some of the reinforcements arrive a little bit later on. We've got one. Why not get both against a Bulldog side that might be dented a little bit from a heavy defeat to Melbourne last Saturday night, albeit the D's possibly the best team in the competition. We'll chat a little bit later on to Gary Colling, 265 games for the Saints throughout the 60s, 70s and into the early 80s. Coached our reserves team into a grand final and had a lot to do with player development along the way. So we're really very much looking forward to that. We're going to change our voting system around a little bit uh, later on, uh, and also we'll have our uh, regular awards. We'd love to hear from you across all of our channels. And uh, one thing that is very important, wherever you listen to us, Spotify or uh, Apple or wherever it, it happens to be, if you could jump on and, and give a review, provided you like it. If, you, if you're not a fan, maybe just pass on that. But if you are, if you are a fan, uh, just click the, uh, click the five stars and give us a little bit of a review. It's very good for the traction and, and spreading all of that around. Um, and, of course, all via our socials. You can slip some questions in. But a really terrific feeling, obviously, to get that win on Sunday, backs to the wall. And, and it felt like there was total buy-in. And for all of the people that were maybe doubting, Nick, as I, as I bring you in, and, and justifiably so, there's, there's a long way to go. But we did go on a rant last week with all the people saying bottom four and bottom three and bottom five and all of that sort of stuff. Well, we showed we're a side with system. We showed we've got a bit of spirit and, and there's a bit of buy-in there. And we're going to fight pretty hard until we get these guys back. Yeah it's, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, we, we spoke last week and, and in previous episodes you're towards the end of last year uh, and, and earlier this year around what we wanted to see from this kind of Ross Lyon Mark II era, uh, especially early days. And, and I think we got exactly what we wanted to see. Um, you know, we, we want to see a team that's hard to beat, that's competitive, that's accountable, that's structured. And, and without, you know, denigrating any of our previous coaches over the last decade, I said to, I think, both of you guys over the last few days, that in 120 minutes of footy on Sunday afternoon and, and evening, that there was probably more structure and accountability from from that Saints mob than I've seen in in a long, long time. Uh, and it was typical Ross Lyon. I mean, they they moved the ball quickly and directly, which was really nice to see. You know, they played on, uh, they moved the ball quickly, and, and and they they kept running. But they did all those little things that that the chase and tackle and little handball when they were not in the best position, and, and that's the stuff. And sure, there were some mistakes, and it wasn't always pretty. But those sorts of things will come. And and what we wanted to see was that this team is more resilient, is more competitive, uh, and is going to be tough to beat no matter who's out there in the 22 or the 23. They're going to be tough to beat um, regardless of whether King and Membry and whoever are out there. Um, they're going to be a tough out this year. And and doesn't mean that we're expecting them to, to win the flag. But like you said, I, I think we were all kind of a, a bit um, – bamboozled at the predictions of the bottom falling out and, and, you know, being a bottom four, bottom two club. I mean, there's, there's still plenty of talent on that list and, and with a bit of structure and a bit of accountability and responsibility coming through, uh, I guess, back into the, the fabric of saints footy, if, if that's what we're going to use th- this year, then, you know, all, all, all the best for it, all the better for it. And, and I think that 
we got a, a glimpse of that, and I think that we can only get better from there. Yeah, and, and H, there was probably, a, I don't know how everyone else felt, but obviously started the third quarter because we knew that scoring was, was going to be tricky for us, and Fremantle scored, I think, two goals in the first seven or eight minutes of the third quarter, led by 12 points, and it was kind of that feeling that, look, if we're not careful, we're going to be five goals down, and then we'll probably coast to a loss, and, and, and that'll be it. You'd sit there and go, oh, we had a crack, but Fremantle didn't score, really, from that point onwards. We just sort of squeezed the life out of them. I think they, they had 32 inside 50s without kicking a goal after that, and it was just outstanding that the defensive masterclass and the pressure um, just a, a win full of merit against a team that, that had, had every right to go to Marvel and beat us. Yeah, I think if though, if that's the situation we were in last season, Freo coming out, oh, yeah. those first two goals of the third quarter, we're going, it's all over. Well, that actually yeah. happened. I think but, they ended up kicking yeah, eight or basically, something. Basically, yeah. It was almost a replay of last year when mm. you look back at it. Mm. But I was sitting there going, no, this isn't over now. The, 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 he he made like there was changes made. It, it's he has some ability to stop teams on a roll, and I don't know what it is that he has, but he gets a message through, and all of a sudden things change, things click, things just go the right way. Where I found where like compared to what happened with Ratten last year, it's sort of just. Freo kicked those two goals and then the, we sort of fall away and then they kick three, they kick four, they kick five, the game over. But they've kicked two and we're sort of thinking, all right, well, something's going to happen here. And things happened. And and there's the big difference between what we had and now what we have. Last year yeah. we played them with a much better side in Forest. Mm-hmm. This year we played, we've played them with a side that missing many, many players – but they've dug in, they've put in, they've basically got themselves out of a hole, didn't drop their heads at any point, and, yeah, played for each other, played for the team, played for the jumper, and, yeah, came away with a, a win that you say, well, they should be contenders, um, and many people have put them as contenders this year. There we go, we tick one tick already that against a team who we should who should probably be beating us, so... We've taken one, and yeah, hopefully a few more to come with that same spirit in mind. And that's what we we spoke about last week is kind of without all the other fanfare around Ross coming back and whatever, but you look at this round one team and the injury list, and and we said it last week that Ross Lyon is the perfect coach to kind of navigate through these waters because it's all about the system. It doesn't matter who's out there. It can be, you can be missing players one to six on your list, and, and he did that at times when he was coach originally. But you look at the injury list now, and it didn't matter if it was Jack Bytel or Seb Ross or Dan McKenzie or whoever was going to be in that position. They knew their role, and they knew what they were expected to do, where they were expected to be, and what they were expected to do once they got the ball or when they were without the ball. They knew what their roles was were, and and doesn't mean that they were perfect all the time. They, like I said, there were still a lot of mistakes, and there's a lot to clean up and improve. But like I said, it, it felt like this was a bit different um, in that there was accountability and the players knew their role. They went out there and executed, maybe not always well, but they went out and did the job and, and ultimately came away with the with the chocolates at the end. Yeah, and, and obviously I, I look at 
you know, three and three as being the, the magic number. If we can find a way, you know, when players start to roll back, if we can split the first six somehow, and obviously getting a result against a team that was tipped to play finals, so we take a game off them, we pick up one where we were underdogs, and look, ultimately it's always the aim to try to, you know, get yourself into the top eight um, as a starting point. And, you know, there's a long way to go, obviously, in that calculations, but that's a good start. Obviously, it's a reverse of what happened last year when Collingwood kind of smacked us in the face a bit in round one and we didn't realise they were as good as they were. And um, obviously, we recovered from that loss to a degree, but, but yeah, obviously, to be on the front foot this time, um, obviously, the reports are that memory's at least a month away and, and that's concerning when you factor in that it was a clean-up on the knee and he was likely to be right for round one. Now they're saying last week they said he was out for the first two. Now it's at least a month. So I'm like, okay, well, how bad is it? Um, Max King obviously had that hamstring setback. He's six weeks away. Windhager will play this week. Ross is a test, I think. Um, we lose Webster, who... You know, obviously, whenever you see a St Kilda player get hurt, you're like, well, what's the, the back end of that or the worst case scenario of that? Jack Bytel got a nick on his knee and ended up in hospital. So, again, that's a, a, an unfortunate twist in a rather normal injury. Um, so he's out this week as well. Um, we just got to keep rolling with the punches. And, look, the Bulldogs are, you know, they they have a defence that's not as good as Frio's. Frio had a lot of guys taking intercept marks and um, they set up really well. Whereas the Bulldogs, it's probably more the other way, dynamic midfield and now a bunch of tall forwards, but structurally a little bit weaker behind the ball. So maybe we can punch through that a little bit more. We'll um, we'll wait and see what happens this week. One of the, the questions that's, I guess, gone around the, the league over the last... I guess four or five months is whether Ross has still got it in him, whether he can coach in the modern football, you know, he's been out for a number of years and the game has changed, but he's kind of coming up against, you know, last week, I should say coming up against, you know, the prototype modern football team, you know, they're strong and they're powerful. They're athletic. They run all day. They're skilled. They can take big grabs. They can kick goals. They can stop goals. Like they do everything right. Um, Do you feel like that answer has been questioned has been, that question has been answered because, I feel like he did everything right from a coaching perspective. And and again, not to say that as a team we were perfect. There's a lot that we can get better at. But I feel like that should give St Kilda fans a bit of um, a bit of respite from that question because I think that he showed that he 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 can play modern football. Yeah, I mean, you basically I I listened to the footy on Triple M a lot, and he was doing the Sunday games last year. The amount of times you would just hear the frustration in his voice from something happening. He 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 would not hold back and say like wouldn't would it say, Oh, that was that was just no good. He would actually go, This is what should have happened. This, the, they, why haven't they done this? Why are they not covering this player? Why he you could just hear in his voice that he he still know what knows what's going on. He still understood well, he could see how the game was evolving. So you could Basically, from that point, you're going, yeah, he knows how to win football still. And there was never, I didn't think there was ever going to be a doubt that he could just step back in again and pick it up again. Because he saw me, he basically saw all the teams when you think about it. He was watching different teams every week. So he, he's got an idea of who does what, who plays where already. Um, and, yeah, was able to just, I guess, hark back to what he saw that last year and the year before and going, well, 
let's fix these things up. Let's do these things that teams aren't doing and cover the things that they do well. So, and I think that's where he may be surprised Frio with a little couple of different things and sort of the, maybe not thinking, oh, that's, he might not realize this or, and yeah, just managed to pick him apart in parts of the game, it seems like. So it, it probably helped him, if anything, do, having that couple of years of just sitting on the sideline and watching everything. So it, it is, I think he's coming out the other side pretty well, looking at just, I mean, there's one result, but he pulls a couple more out early with what he's got. And mm-hmm. yeah, you go, it, it's the best thing he probably could have done. Yeah, Operation Three and Three. I think that's the uh, the plan. But um, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. He's obviously got people around him that he that he trusts. Obviously, people that he's worked with closely, like Harvey and Hayes and, and Goddard, and obviously um, Corey Enright's a, a very polished operator with a with a good resume, and and obviously comes from a lot of success. But it was interesting. He mentioned at the presser, and um, would have been a perfect opportunity for a follow up question, where he, he basically said that he's delegating a bit more now that it's a sort of slightly different approach for his. Uh, he's still hands-on, but obviously there's a lot more involvement of those guys around him. And I would be curious to know, I guess, what the motivation of that actually was um, and, and why he's gone down that path. But, yeah, you could see tactically. It, it appeared, obviously, without having that game plan in front of them, that, that we were sort of setting up two walls, one kick and two kicks in front of the ball all the time. And Fremantle got a lot of possession in the back half but just couldn't run the ball through the corridor. And if you break down the seven goals they scored, they, they kicked one in the first minute, obviously, when everything's set up in the six six six, And then they got a reasonably soft free kick, then a, then a very soft free kick and a 50-metre penalty, then a mark that hit the ground and a 50-metre penalty, then um, another free kick that was very soft, and then they kicked a freakish goal at the start of the third quarter with a player running around the boundary and then got a front and centre. So they probably should have kicked three in in reality. But, um, yeah, I, I thought tactically we just squeezed the life out of them and they had no answer. And obviously the Bulldogs will look at that and think, well, how do we unpick that lock? But... The bottom line is it's not going to be easy for them to unpick the lock. There'll be times that I'll get frustrated and um, I'm not sure they're, they're, they're a side without being too critical of them and it might come back to bite me. I'm not sure they're a side that deals with that level of frustration particularly well. So um, hopefully we can squeeze them again. You mentioned those two 50-meter penalties. I mean, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about them because I felt like at least the first one was very uncal Wilkie like yeah. and... and yeah, but potentially something was frustrating him kind of behind the, the scenes. But I mean, everyone knows you, you can't, you can't talk to umpires anymore. Everyone knows that. And so I'm not sure where all the contention is coming around it because everyone's known that for 12 months, that that's the rule. Just don't do it. My only yeah. issue was that it depends on the level of descent. I mean, if you point at the screen and say he hasn't, that that's not a free kick. To me, I think we can. But umpires are never exactly. Take what I mean, comes the screen like I understand that. what Grant Thomas was saying. Too. You're right. I mean, they're not going to change their mind. But Grant Thomas made the point, and, and look, he's never shy in criticising umpires. But an umpire makes a mistake, a player gets frustrated because it's an emotional game, expresses that frustration. Umpire pays a fifty, which doubles down on his original mistake and amplifies mm-hmm. it even further. So. That's where it's a little bit frustrating. One mistake becomes a huge mistake mm. simply because yeah. the player reacted to the first one. Yeah, it's you, you can understand why they get so frustrated. Um, and I, I reckon there was, there was a few moments where I actually I saw Wilkie. I mean, 
Tabernet was holding his Guernsey, mm. I don't know how many times, and nothing gets called. Wilkie gets a small arm around him, or, he, or the one we're thinking of, they they were both holding Guernseys at the same time. And yeah, you can see and- why he gets frustrated, because it, it, you go, well, if you call one, you need to call every single one of them. Both ways, not just not, not just go. Oh, there's one. We'll call that, and and that's where the players get frustrated because you call it once, but then all of a sudden, it happens the other way, and nothing gets called, and it happens again, and nothing gets called. But I reckon Tabner felt like he'd get away with it. Hmm. So it's you can see that that's why he's got so angry with it because there's obviously probably ones that are missed, and then the one that gets called shouldn't have been called, and. Yeah, there's, I don't know where they've taken too much away from the players in the way of being able to express themselves now. It's still, it 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 went a long way from players being able to express frustration to the second they do, you're penalised. It's there, there's got to be a little bit of leniency there. You think it's, but. Yeah, we know the rule, but yeah, it's... it's... But it, even that red hot, I mean, the, the red hot holding the ball they played against Jimmy Webster in the, the start of the second quarter, about 20 metres out from goal, we were just lucky Luke Jackson kicked that ball into Nando's across the road, um, which which assisted us a little bit. But um, yeah, there, there was some bizarre, the, the deliberate out of bounds against Hunter Clark for a spoil. I mean, we could go on Yeah, and the one that he got paid with, later on against them, yeah. But someone made a good point on Twitter that at least Cal Wilkie, it felt like he decided after that moment where he was like, well, fuck you then. I'm going to win every contest for the rest of the day. And, and yeah. he did. So, um, which was a really good response. But yeah, it, it was frustrating. I, I was watching the game thinking, we've got the longest injury list in history. Like everything's gone wrong. Why are we getting bent over as well? Like we're, we're busting our busting our balls, so to speak, against a side that played finals last year. We're having a crack. We're severely depleted. Why are we copping this as well? Like, hmm. give us a break. And, and, and obviously, eventually, it, it went back the other way. But it almost felt cruel. It's like, why would we be unlucky today of all days? Yeah. But, yeah. I guess what it, what it did show is that, you know, that back six is incredibly trustworthy hmm. as well. Like, regardless of frustration, you give away a silly 50 or a couple of silly 50s, really. But, but still... You know, only concede seven goals with with that pressure. Um, you know, you've got the the big blokes on the other end, Brennan Cox and and Luke Ryan taking intercept marks at will and and propelling them forward again. And and our back six, as they did all last year and the year before, uh, really stood up and and took the brunt of that pressure and continued to do their job. And then became creative on the way back, whether it was Battle or or. Sinclair or Wanganin Miller in the second half, who, who really kind of came into the game in that in that second half. Brad Hill on the wing, you know, coming from from half back. Like it, it, that 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 defensive unit is just incredibly good and so underrated. Now, um, H, we're going to wrap up that game with the votes. You put the proposal through for a bit of a change in format this year. We, we thought the three-two-one was a little bit stale. Everyone does that. Um, what have you? What did you decide to come up with? Yeah, well, I thought halfway between sort of a three-two-one and where the club gives votes to basically everyone for every game, um, thought it would just just lift the, I guess, total amount of votes we're giving, um, 
it also gives a bit of freedom to put as many in as we want sort of thing. So yeah, we'll go with this year with pretty much giving 10 votes each and you can spread that 10 however you want. You can give, give one player 10 if everyone else is a dud and if you can't decide on 10 only, you can give 10 players one vote. So it's, it's, it's a matter of basically spread it how you want. Um, obviously, you can only get up to 10 players, but um, yeah, it sort of give a lot of players of can be very unlucky on weeks, week after week, um, missing out on the uh, with just the three, two, one, and sort of all the apologies we've been giving, and so you thought, well, let, let's sneak a few more of those in, and probably tighten the tighten the um, leaderboard up a little bit as well, because we've had a few runaway winners. Um, so yeah, I mean, in saying that, I still found it difficult. <laughs> it was still yeah. <laughs> still hard to put spread that 10 out. Um, but yeah, in reading it, I'm thinking we're just going to give, just go with all the you know, ones or whatever and um, just, just read the ones out and then give her a couple of reasonings with a couple of the larger votes you might give. So um, just to start off, basically I gave yeah one to Sinclair, one to Battle and one to Burns, um, all very serviceable. Um, two to Mason Wood. I think he, in the second half, just, just broke loose. And became a focal point for the team, and like had a good first half, and but in the second half he became almost dominant up forward and split the game open for the two goals, and just just gave us a, a really good spark there that got us over the line. Uh, I go two to Crouch; he was dominant all day. Um, he, he gathers possessions without being noticed. Um, when I saw him, he was I, I knew he was doing good things. Then I read the possession and I thought he's having a bigger game than I thought and yeah I'll go back and had a look at the skip through the game again and looked at what he did and I'm just thought yep yep he's done a lot more than what I realized on the day so I thought he had a massive game um but as mentioned before Cal Wilkie I gave him three um as my best on and um yeah after that 50 did not get beaten all day and um so basically in what is probably our only stroke of luck we've had this year that he gets almost knocked out, hit in the head, goes out with the blood rule and only missed 3% of game time. So it was, yeah, amazing that, yeah, we actually got one away with one. So, I mean, the way we've been going, he would have missed the next two matches, not it would have seemed, but... Yeah, yeah that's um, right. Three months, not three minutes. Yeah, uh, yeah would, exactly. would have generally been the case for uh, for for a situation like that. I um I still had some apologies. I gave apologies to Jack Steele, who didn't do anything wrong. Played a very good game. Uh, Josh Battle, excellent game in defence, and, and even Brad Hill and Hunter Clark were, were both very good, particularly in the first half. And I felt bad leaving them out of votes, but I uh, gave one to Sinclair and Burns. That's the best best game uh, Burns has played for the club. And Sinclair was excellent. I put his body on the line a number of times as well, but very creative. Two votes to Mason Wood. I gave four players equal best on ground. Uh, Mason Wood, Cal Wilkie, Brad Crouch, and actually Rowan Marshall. Uh, so Crouch, certainly, I thought he was outstanding. Wilkie killed five, played a blinder. Mason Wood ended up being the difference, our best attacking weapon probably. But Rowan Marshall, if you look at his numbers, I think it was something like 16 possessions, seven marks, 17 hitouts, five tackles, four clearances, something like that. Good numbers, not unbelievable, not jump off the page, wow, what a game. But 
from the eye watching him, I felt he was best on ground, only in terms of just the influence. He got the so many contests. He got back. He got forward. He competed. He nullified the influence of Fremantle's big men, uh, really threw himself around, and I thought he was huge. So I gave him a, a couple of votes as well. But uh, Nick? Yeah, I, I agree with both of you guys. Slightly different order, but I uh, give some apologies again to, to Jack Steele. Uh, again, another really good game, um, but we're so used to excellence mm. from Jack Steele, and, and it wasn't quite that level of Jack Steele. I mean, this award is named after his <laughs> Jack Steele Award, um, and, and I don't think he's got a vote. Um, but I gave one vote to Josh Battle. I thought, um, you know, kind of he's really found his spot uh, in, in that back six, and and he looks a very, very good footballer at centre-half back and uh, really pleased with the way that he's come on over the last couple of years since moving into that that position. I gave two to Cal Wilkie for, for the reasons that you guys have already given. I mean, just you know, imperious in defence. And, and once he kind of makes that decision, like you said, I'm not going to get beaten again, he just wasn't. And he's so very rarely beaten um, that it's it's just not funny anymore. Uh, I gave two to Rowan Marshall. Like I said, I think especially in that first half, I thought he was everywhere. Even if he didn't get a stat, particularly, like you said, his, his stat line doesn't kind of jump out at you. But but he was just everywhere in the contest, competing, running, chasing, you know, on his hands and knees, just just a part of everything. And I thought he was super important to the way that we structured up. I gave two two votes to Crouch uh, again, like like you said, H, just racks up possessions at will without you even noticing. Little handballs out of a clearance or a stoppage. Um, he, he can kind of rebound off halfback as well and be a link man through the middle. Just really, it's become a really, really important player for us over the last two years um, and, and had another excellent game in the middle. But I gave three votes to Mason Wood. Uh, I think gone are the days when he's the, the Jason Blake Award winner. Um, I don't think he's <laughs> underrated anymore. I think he's a very, very important part of our lineup, our structure, and would probably be one of the first names on the team sheet every week because of his versatility, his skill, um, you know, kicking skill throughout the, the center of the ground and on the wing can impact the scoreboard as we saw. Uh, probably should have had three goals, ended up with two goals, one, uh, and just was a very, very damaging player forward or center, but has the ability to continue running and, and impact in defense as well. And I'm uh, just really impressed with, with the way that he's kind of fit into our our side and and I feel like he's the perfect guy to, to to kind of elevate his game again under Ross Lyon. Yeah, nearly dragged us into the finals last year with the four he kicked against Brisbane uh, late in the season as well. He's been a, a terrific recruit, as we said, and and it's great that we're getting that from him. He can kind of play a bit of the memory, not quite that exact role, but hitting up on the lead and then linking as a wingman and then going forward and being a very crafty option as well. So he's been super important. Little shout out. I thought uh, Wangadine Malera really struggled in the first half, but thought he played a very, very good second half. So he responded exactly as you would hope that he would um, and ended up being almost in the best by the end of it. So credit to him for that, but more on that a little bit later on. Uh, We are going to be joined by our special guest now, a 265 game saint, Gary Colling. Picked up by Colling. Colling hand pass out to centre-half back. Here's a chance for um, Saru. Back it goes to Robert Elliott. Elliott a perfect pass out to Green. Green downfield looking for Barker. Over Barker's head. Taken there to pull forward. George Young in possession. Tries a right footer and it's a good one. And a hand pass to Dittrich. Carl rams it through. From Rex Hunt was a hand pass. And that was great football. 
Well, our next guest on Unplugged played 265 games for the Saints, ranks ninth overall for games played for the club, was a part of a St Kilda team that played finals through the late 60s and early 70s, obviously the pinnacle of which was that 1971 grand final appearance against the Hawks, captained the club in 1978 and uh, delighted to have him as our first guest this season as the club celebrates 150 years. Gary Colling, thanks for joining us on the podcast. No worries, guys. Thank you very much. In year 150, obviously there's a lot to reflect on. How do you feel sitting here now knowing that you sit ninth all-time for games played at a club that's 150 years old? Bloody old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think uh, I was pretty lucky. Um to uh, to play as many as I did through that era. Um, yeah, we didn't play. Well, we played. We did play quite a few games in the early seventies and late sixties there in the finals. But uh, then, after I think about seventy five, was pretty much a drought. Um, when you look at guys like at uh, Hawthorne who probably played thirty odd, I think I played about fourteen odd finals. Um, we should have played a hell of a lot more with. Uh, the sides that we had or done a lot better, I, I feel. Gary, let's um, take you back to the beginning, but how did you get to the footy club? Obviously, the, the league kind of moved to zoning structures. You were from down the, the peninsula, down in Frankston. How did you end up at, at St Kilda? Yeah, it was interesting because um, um, my junior club president, I, I was playing junior football and uh, Stuart Trott and uh, Travis Bays had gone to uh, St Kilda already. I was a mad Collingwood supporter, and uh, so I I got an invitation from Collingwood. I was about fifteen and a half, and I thought I was kidding. And then um, my junior club president took me out to train at Essendon. Um, St Kilda always were always confident that they would get the um, Peninsula area as a zone, but uh, I think to cap it off, and Ian Drake kept on coming around. Um, saying, look, you know, you're going to sign, you're going to sign. And I think uh, the uh, the final straw was um, Graham Richmond and Paddy Ganane came around to the to the house. And I remember um, in those days we had a little hearth. It was probably only a brick and a bit high. And I remember Paddy Ganane with his um, slick back hair, this uh, rock star, and he was probably about 6'4", oh, but he looked absolutely enormous. So he's standing on the fireplace with Graham Richmond beside him. And uh, he produced about $1,000 or a £1,000. And he said, listen here, Coco, for every minute you take, I'm putting $100 back in my pocket. Anyway, I'm watching this for a couple of minutes. And he and he said, you take your dad and you make a decision. Anyway, at one point he said, oh, you'll, you'll, be, you'll make the greatest fullback this club's ever seen. Anyway, I went up the corridor with dad and I said, I don't think these blokes have ever seen me play. Never played in the back line of my life. I was playing centre forward then as a junior. And uh, anyway, I sort of let it slip. And then um, um, St Kilda were shattered. Well, actually, Ian Drake came around. He found about. He said, look, I think you'd better sign uh, just in case we don't get the zone. So I was the last player to sign before zoning came in. And my best mate at that time, uh, junior footy, was Kel Moore. And Kel only lived three, 400 metres away. We used to block off the street, play footy, cricket, etc. And, uh, of course, he ended up being zoned to Hawthorne. So, being a mad Collingwood fan, recruited in 68, how did 66 go when you sort of 
you th- thinking back to that and walking into the club and thinking, oh, it, how was the transition going from there, from probably hating us two years before that to the to joining us? Well, I only knew Bulldog and Stuart <laughs> and and Carl, and I I can remember exactly where I was. I was caddying at Long Island. I was a head caddy, and uh, we're on the seventeenth tee when they kicked the uh, the score, and I was just about in tears because um, the uh, the group that I was caddying for they had the uh, little transistor radio. <laughs> And one was a Collingwood supporter. He threw it up in the air, and uh, yeah. Anyway, like yeah, you you quickly forget that, and uh, you're just glad that you get the opportunity to play AFL footy. Played 16 games in your first season, which included a, a final. Obviously, St Kilda had missed the finals in '67, but back in '68, obviously, what was your your first impressions of of Alan Jeans? It was obviously well and truly entrenched <laughs> at the, the place at that stage. Well, I used to go to RMIT, and Yabby was at uh, Russell Street. And we'd catch the same train home to uh, to training. And I'd see his big melon head walking down Swanson Street and I made sure it was about 50 metres behind him. He'd get on about carriage three and I'd get on the last carriage. And in those days, uh, there were a lot of vacant blocks walking down from the station down to Moorabbin. I'd make sure that if he'd ever turned around, I was uh, up behind a tree or somebody else's fence. I was... Yeah, I was petrified of the man because I relayed the story that for about 10 years, all he said was, you know, you got so-and-so, don't let him get a kick. And then uh, he uh, he thought uh, it'd come a brainstorm where he made me ruck roving. And after about five games, he took me aside and he said, look, you need to get more possessions. And I said, well, for 10 years, you've been telling me, just stop the opposition, don't worry about getting kicks. And he, he just said, I think I've done you a grave injustice, laddie. <laughs> We've had some pretty good uh, Alan Jeans impersonations, all, all that end up with the word oh, yeah. I think. Uh... <laughs> no, look, he was a ripper because he he um, equated uh, football to uh, to life. You know, the drunks, the drunks in the gutters, uh, getting out of you know, if someone left the police cell open and you're a prisoner. What would you do? You wouldn't just wait. And you know, you guys are playing like that. You know, the doors open, run, run, run. You go for it. <laughs> <laughs> the little old ladies at the uh, doing the the three point turn that was a classic. He used to rip, roll that one out a bit at um, Swanson Street. You don't wait, you don't wait, you don't wait. You just <laughs> just plant your foot and go. <laughs> you, you played with a lot of gun footballers through through that period. I mean, you, you're on record as saying that you rocked up to preseason every year, not thinking that you'd get a game because there were such good good players around you. But who who are your I guess. You, your favourite players that, that you played, just from a, a few, pure footballing perspective, who, who were the greatest players that you played Oh, well, as a 17-year-old kid, I rocked up and there was Bordock, Stuart, Dittrich, Smith, um, Bobby Murray, um, Ian Sinman. They're, they're all still there from the 66 uh, side. And uh, uh, I was as skinny as all hell. And I, I think I got my mum to take my white shorts in because I kept on flapping in the breeze. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it was just a huge honour to, to be able to play with those guys. Yeah. Back then, obviously players had to have careers on the outside of playing football as well. And what, what career did you have and sort of how was the, I guess the work football balance that you had and how do you think the, I guess they, there was kind of a transition to becoming professional towards the end of your career. How, how was you seeing that, I guess, transition at that point happening and where it was going? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, probably the only thing, I think um, Philip Morris was the greatest employer, but then teaching, a couple of guys worked in a bank, 
and I, uh, Stephen Theodore and Barry Lawrence started a, fen- a fencing business, but they were always absolutely buggered and coming in mud. They're, they're probably the only um, sort of tradies, if you like. Um, but I don't think I could have done it without uh, if I wasn't a teacher or, say, working in a bank. And then, um, well, transition, you know, we were still fully employed. And I, I think that sort of helped us because you go to school and kids are dang shit on you left, right and centre if you if you lost or played an ordinary game. Um, I taught Dermot, uh, Dermot Burton, in year 10. Uh, as, and uh, we only went up to year 10 at that particular stage and we'd have kick to kick. There's three or four of the staff we'd have kick to kick and Dermot would always up on the oval trying to take hangers over you. And uh, I think he said one one day I'll actually one day one of the one of the teachers had a whistle in his hand. He didn't mean it, but he, he kept on flying. And, and um, this guy just sort of put his hand out just to sort of block him, clip the corner of um, Dermy's nose, and, and nicked a you know a little bit of blood there. And uh, I remember him saying to me, "I'll I'll end up playing on you." And one day I said, "I'll piss off you, little shit, never." <laughs> and then uh, my last game was about eighty-two in the twos, and it was his la- last game before he got elevated. And um, I think uh, from memory, Jack Clark was the twos coach, and I said, "I oh, we're picking the side, Jack and I." And, and I just said, "Well, look, whatever happens, don't put me down down on the uh, on the uh, back line." And as it turned out, I had to go back. Dermy took a mark about 15 out. This is the old um, uh, Heatley stand. And with his trademark, flipped the ball around, you know, how we used to spin it. <laughs> but he was on the ground. <laughs> and I knew you have your sense that someone's going to jump in your back and you've got no protection. I, I sensed that. And I turned around. Here he was on his back. And I went and grabbed him by the throat. The goal umpire came out. The field umpire rushed in. And I said, sorry, I used to teach this little shit. And he just went back, <laughs> spanned the ball, kicked it as high as he could into the Heatley stand. And I think the next week he was playing for Hawthorne, either the second semi or whatever it was under his career. Yeah, and kicked five on, on debut in that final, yeah, I think, yeah, as well. But, um, and I think he, through... he wrote that he, he kicked four or five on me in the seconds, but it was only one because I'd, I'd only gone down to the last minute. But <laughs> That's probably up to eight by now when he retells yeah, yeah, that story. Sure. <laughs> um, early 70s, obviously a lot of people feel we, we should have won a second flag through 70, 71, 72, 73. And uh, without bringing up painful memories, your reflections on 71? Well, I've refused to watch it and I still mm. will never watch it. But uh, I believe um, I'd get to about three or four positions for three-quarter time and then Hudson hadn't been going all that well. And rather than take them off, they switched them. And uh, uh, in those days, Hawthorne used to play everyone up the ground and just one out. And um, I think from memory, I was sort of waving to say, sure, you're not going to leave me one out here. And after about uh, two or three, I think uh, they got the message that, uh, yeah, I shouldn't have been playing fullback. Um, <laughs> but we were 19 points up, I can remember that. Um, and to lose by seven, I think, in the end. Yeah, yeah that was... Uh, it was pretty shattering, very shattering, and always, I mean, always wanted the chance to uh, to play in another one. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking fifty years, literally fifty years ago that that game, and, and still you, you haven't seen no, it. You no, won't watch no it. No intention of watching. No. It. <laughs> no, so still, still must, still must burn. Oh, yeah, still well, it's burn. it's funny because I'm good mates with Don Don Scott, and Don won't watch any of the losing ones that he's played in. It's just one of those things that you know. Uh, yeah, don't want to relive it, but uh, 
mind you, Don and I, we, we go to the local footy. I coach the local footy down here and Don um, coached Sorrento and we went, to, we'd go down and watch a couple of country games and uh, it happened to be a Sorrento game. It would be probably five years ago now. Don went to go and get a coffee. Next minute, there's Bob Ketty sidled up beside me. <laughs> oh, Ket, how are you? <laughs> so, oh. He wanted to chat for a quarter. I could not, I could not get away from him. <laughs> I was going to ask you: Did you ever have any any thoughts about sending Cowboy in his elbow to oh, Bob Kenny? No. In the, in well, he was too far year. away. There was no there was no Indians <laughs> to come and help me. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it, it is an interesting one. I mean, I, I can't watch the ninety seven, oh nine, or ten, and that's oh, just God, as a spectator. Man. So it's um, I, I can totally relate to that. The, the year after seventy two was a, a missed opportunity, I'd imagine, with a few injuries. We were in a good position against Carlton in a preliminary final. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I went to a luncheon the other day, and I, um, we could we could beat Richmond, um, we could beat Hawthorne, we, but we could we could really beat Carlton in finals. They seemed no matter where they were, um, you know, it was a first semi, prelim final, second semi. We just couldn't get over Carlton. They just uh, had the wood on us for some reason. But uh, I think uh, seventy, no seventy eight, we definitely had a really good chance. And uh, yeah, that was the uh, the bloodbath, and we'd beaten every side in that year. And I think, you know, had we have, I think it was the last game that we we lost out on percentage or something like that. But yeah, uh, yeah, we we had a great side. I mean, side bottom on half forward flank, Dittrich. Uh, it was just yeah, we were, we were uh, uh, primed primed to win that, but we didn't get there. So so be it. So, so we talked about, I mean. Keddy obviously played one game on you and would, he hadn't heard a lot more obviously about him over the other times, but other oppositions that you would play on, who, who are some of the players that you like found that were hard matchups or players that you enjoyed playing on who, and who's pro- like you're probably your best opponent you've ever had to match up on? Uh, well, I used to, um, Gingy, we'd, we'd played Fitzroy and it was Johnny Murphy, Gary Wilson, David McMahon and Warwick Irwin. And Gigi had this theory that they get, you know, the side to get 230 oppositions. Between those four, they get 200. Um, so I think myself, Jeff Moran, and I can't remember the other two, we'd just, the two, we'd just negate those and we'd, we'd beat Fitzroy all the time. Probably the hardest ones were, um, uh, uh, again, Carlton. Swan Mackay in a half-forward flank at six foot three with an arm span at 20 foot. And changing with Trevor Keogh, who was five foot eight and as nippy as all hell. That was a, an absolute nightmare. I used to enjoy playing on Blight if if he played well the week before. But if he hadn't played if he didn't play well for two weeks, it was just a nightmare. He would stand on your shoulders, he would kick him sixty foot sixty metres out in his left foot. Um Yeah, I yeah, the closer the goal I and in the end I I copped Jezalenko quite a Quite a bit, but uh, yeah, it was, it's, it was interesting. I'd have nightmares. You know, Ginger, you tell you probably Tuesday night who you're playing on, and you try and gather as much information. And in those days, you might have a two minute glimpse. Yeah, you, you had a fair idea that okay, you're going to get um, a blight on the weekend, so you might have five minutes of that opposition on World of Sport, and you try and pick them up where they'd stand at boundary throw-ins or what they do. So it was pretty limited compared to what uh, guys go through now. You've told the story about 
uh, what it was like playing on Peter Benford in the past. <laughs> I'm keen to kind of get that get that story. Peter will kill me at because stage, I but... haven't run into him, but uh, yeah, the uh, <laughs> I used to get him a, a fair bit, and oh, he uh, coming from the VFA, fairly tough little bugger, and uh, <laughs> oh, you, you'd hang on in those days, like you hang on to him, and you know you're fair game because they just whack you and and belt you. But this particular day, he'd done everything, and uh, uh, he spat at me. And Ross Smith just ran past with his little bum up near, and he said, "Oh, Peter, that's not like us, Brownlow Middlest." And I think it's probably the first time he got stopped in his tracks. <laughs> Heading into the um, into the, the late seventies, and you're now kind of a, a senior statesman of, of the side, and and. Uh, you're elected captain in 78. How did that come about? And, and why is there, I guess, the the implication that it was somewhat controversial at the time? I mean, it only lasted one year. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's probably, <laughs> after after um, 70, or 75, 76, um, the club, I mean, the club were, were really great in recruiting a lot of um, interstate players and it was probably a destination club. Um, some of them didn't work out, but then, we lost something like 14 players, Rex Hunt, uh, Phil Stevens, Carl, uh, Robbie, the, the Alec boys, um, Russell Reynolds had gone back, George Young. And in the end, there was only me, Bruni, Duper, um, Gary Sidebottom. Um, yeah, um, there was only about five or six of us sort of left. And um, uh, I got the, the job. And, look, the club, the club had no money. Um, and we all knew that, um, and I hadn't taken any money out. Bruni, you know, a lot of players hadn't, but um, we just knew that there was no money uh, uh, at all. And after '78, I got offered a really good gig to go to um, Dandenong VFA, a three-year deal on. And I thought, well, '28, I'll, I'll probably have only got a couple more years left, and this will be, uh, this, um, you know, I'll make a little bit of money, which I hadn't done previously. Hadn't taken anything out, and then the club weren't going to re, um, uh, clear me. The and uh, VFL and Provident Fund was all tied up; they weren't going to clear me. Um, so in the end, I came back um, the week before the first game and ended up. They said, "Oh, well, you can't be captain," which which is fairly fairly obvious. And uh, without any training or anything, they whacked me on the bench um, for the first game, seventy nine. Played uh, 19 games that year. We won that that opening match of the season. Just having a, a look at it now. Um, post your your career, obviously, when it did come to to an end, you mentioned you played um, on Dermy in that late '82 in the in the seconds. Um, your association with with the club in terms of following them in, in the in the time since, and I guess what you've observed of their journey through the '80s and how they obviously revived in the uh, the early '90s or late '80s when uh, when Doc obviously came back as coach and then into into Kenny Sheldon after that. Yeah, um, I think it was '86, '87. Um, I went and coached the twos, and um, you know that the, through the, the, the last well, in actual fact, um, Stewie and I sat down and he said, "Oh, look, I want you to stay at the club and." And coach the twos. Anyway, we had a difference in philosophies. So I said, look, I'll go away and coach in the country, prove that my theories are right and all that sort of stuff. And I went back in 87, coached the twos for a couple of years, then the under 19, and then under 19s. Um, you know, Doc, Doc was on board. Um, and then um, Ken and, um, you know, the plug at, you know, we, 
um, I was assistant footy manager to Hutto, and then we drafted. What did we have? Twenty. I think we had twenty-three players under the age of twenty-one, or twenty-one under the age of twenty-three. And uh, I mean, that was that was the turning point. You know, getting youth. Um, as much as you know, everyone hated losing Plugger. Um, it was the turning point in the club, and we were able to play in that '97 with Smith, Jones, Brown, Lappin, Zilla, Wakelands. You know, it, it just worked out fine, and that that actually set us up in that period of time. But um, you know, I you know, going back to the late '70s, there, they, I don't know what had happened, but they just didn't have that um, that succession planning for either admin nor players coming in. You mentioned coaching the the twos. Uh, 1987 grand final, obviously, against Carlton in the reserves um, that particular year. And you spoke about playing in 71 and wanting to get back there. What was the experience like being on the other side of the coin, <laughs> coaching, albeit a reserves grand final, and unfortunately running into the uh, the nemesis Carlton again, but nearly winning a flag? Yes, yeah, so it would have been nice to... Uh... Nice to actually sort of feel a bit relieved that I'd done or contributed back to the club. But, um, well, the irony of that was I think we'd beaten them three times throughout the year, but they had their full list available. And uh, then um, my little gun rover broke his ankle in the first quarter. Um, And I think I broke three phones that day, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which wasn't unusual for me. But, uh, yeah, look, that that was, again, that was disappointing, but... We had some great young young players who, um, you know, went went on and uh, um, you know stabilised the, the side for the next uh, four or five years as well. Uh, that was a good experience. Yeah. So after finishing up with coaching the coaching the club and having an association with the club and having played there for, as I was saying at the time, you would have been pretty much I think I believe the second longest serving player. Um. What, what was your association with the club? How did you get back to down there much? Did you still oh, catch up with a lot of the players at the time, or how, how much involvement did you still have? Um, it was interesting. I can't even recall how we um, we, we had one of the, probably the poorest. A lot of players had left St Kilda with a with a bad taste in their mouth for whatever reason. Um, I mean, look, I I was lucky. I I left on my own terms, so um, I was fine. But the, I found out there were a lot of people had left and been burnt um, and we got the past players up and running um, a few people and that really started to kick in so I was involved in in that quite heavily and uh, pleased to say that you know it's still really going well and then I got seconded on the honours and awards committee that was an interesting thing because you've got to make judgment on your peers and you know, you're judging players in the 90s from, you know, on 70s values and you just got to, yeah, it's so difficult to to equate all that sort of stuff. Very subjective. But I enjoyed it, yeah. Talking about your peers and, and uh, I guess, different eras, a couple of your fellow captains are no longer with us and, and all we have are, are memories, but your memories of, of the great Trevor Barker and Danny Frawley through, through your time, at the footy club, what are, what are your kind of, uh, you know, evolving memories of, of those guys? Well, Barks was just absolutely unique in that um, for his size, he started off as a half-forward flanker, just a, a fantastic little tackler, uh, and then moved to full-back playing on Hudson, all the, all the absolute giants of the, the game. And I, I do remember, I can't even remember what year it was, but let's say it's 79 or something like that, he was odds-on favourite um, to win the Brownlow. 
and they'd had a big function up in the uh, or prepared a big function up in the uh, social club. I think you got about three. Actually, it was embarrassing playing anywhere near him because you're free, Trevor. You're free, Trevor. You're and you, you had this thing that the umpires loved him. And I think he had about three, four votes. It was, it was just absolutely shattering uh, for him. Well, I mean, Barks took all that stuff in his in his stride. And look, he would have been the next coach of St Kilda. He, he just taught me so much as, like I was administrating at the time and Barks had just come in and he would have a letter of thanks already written and given to the person who may have just come to address the players or whatever um, and a gift and whatever before they even walked out the door. Um, you know, you might take a week to think about that, but Barks is such a personable person and, and players, um, you know, without being demonstrative in anything, he just had that quiet demeanour about him and, uh, yeah, this well, it, it, people just loved him for, for him being what he what he was. Um, Spud was just enormous in the club where, um, you know, we, we were gone and, and um, Spud and Anita used to have all the young players around. Again, we, as I say, we're such a young club. Um, and I I can recall Joey McLaren had played oh, something like about eight, eight, eight out of the first ten games. And I had someone assist me um, with a player welfare. And they said, you realise Joey goes home every Tuesday night to Woolsthorpe? I'm going, after training, I'm going, what are you talking about? He's... <laughs> anyway, we discovered that, uh, you know, he went back to uh, to be with his younger brother and sisters because he met, uh, missed them so much. You know, take so much for granted with these young guys. It's like you, your mother, father, love a daughter, you take them down, they haven't opened a bank account, they we rip them away from their families um, and you forget that personal side of it. And, um, yeah, from then on, we, we really started to try and embrace the families or get these guys to, to open up a little bit. And I think on a monthly basis, we, we'd probably have the 20 to 25 guys out for dinner every every, every month just to uh, to get that homely feeling. Um, so it, it teaches you a lot. But Spud, Spud took on that role himself and... Uh, <laughs> I I still recall the the times where uh, you know they put Ablett Gary Ablett on the up on the wing trying to get away from Sparta half forward flank and he'd follow him and it was just this no one is ever going to beat me it was just no matter what stage of the game we will win this game he just <laughs> one of his uh, we used to have the gym upstairs and uh, if Plugger's a Plugger's opponent might be Mick Martin so on a punching bag he'd um, um, Danny had paint McMartin's face or some article that McMartin had read a, written about Plugger or someone had written about Plugger and Danny would just instigate, you know, got to punch the hell out of the punching bag and Spud had just turned his head off. Uh, sorry, Plugger would just look at it and just walk past it, but it was all just for theatre. Um, the other thing that <laughs> it probably probably ruined Lowy there for a while, they, they used to have this competition of um, throwing the medicine ball so, you know, after two hours of training, they come in, right up, medicine ball. So Lowy and uh, Danny would get there. They'd get up to 300, 400. And they wondered why they had uh, osteopubis from uh, throwing this bloody medicine ball. And, of course, you know, there's 40-odd blokes egging them on um, to the point through exhaustion. And, as I say, uh, they're lucky they didn't have hernias in the end from it. <laughs> uh, the uh, sports sports science would be all over it now. Yeah, right, <laughs> sure, yeah. So just the tie in with the 150th year of the club. If they were to come to you today and say, "Okay, give us one moment from the club 
of your time that you would put into the archive to be there forever? What What is a moment that you would throw in there? Oh, gee. <laughs> oh, that's... Uh... Oh, that is a really hard one. Um, I think it, you can't go, pro, you know, we've only won one flag. You, you couldn't go past those guys, the the 66 flag under um, to, as a 17-year-old walking in, you know, with Bulldog, Stewart, Dittrich, so those guys, they were just massive in those days. That that sticks in my, my mind. Um, yeah, that's... It is really, uh, really hard, I suppose. Oh, then you, you've got the night, some of the uh, mishaps at Waverley, the night games there, that um, infamous one. Um, yeah, that that is a really, yeah, I, I couldn't, um, oh, but you go into Waverley, then go into Marvel. Um, um, yeah, it's, that is a really hard question. Sorry, I can't answer it. <laughs> There's a lot of moments. There's a lot and of I, moments. I hope, um, obviously, with the 150 celebrations will be announced sort of this week and the game is next week against Essendon. And I'm sure a lot of past players will be pretty heavily involved in, in all of that as well. And, Gary, we, we thank you for, for your contribution all through the, the, the journey, be it um, obviously working in the in the, in the development space with guys like Luke Ball and those sorts of things obviously ended up having fine careers obviously your time coaching the twos and the 265 games you you played for the club sitting inside the top 10 and obviously uh, earning the right as captain as well but we appreciate you joining us yeah no worries guys no pleasure that was Gary Colling. We look ahead to the Western Bulldogs, a Saturday night game. There was once upon a time where we were unbeatable at Marvel on a Saturday night. Uh, hasn't quite been the same of, of recent years, but uh, we had a stinker. One of our worst performances of the year last year was against the Bulldogs, and it actually, strangely enough, was the, the week immediately after we'd lost to Freo. So uh, we, we are playing those same two sides in succession once more. So... Uh, hopefully uh, we can obviously get the result this time around. Obviously, in terms of personnel, Windhager will play. He'll play for Bytel. I think Patton will start um, in place of Webster, which seems like for like. So the only other question would be then who's the sub and will there be any repercussions for, for Dan Butler, who was subbed out of the game um, due to form rather than, than injury? And yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later on in another segment. But um yeah, any other – I mean, it, it's probably hard to mount a case, H, for any other changes simply because we don't have any other players. Oh, that's one factor, <laughs> I guess. So, um, yeah, as you're saying, the, uh, the injury list from before round with round one, which is, yeah, as, as long as you can, would think it's extended again. And, um, yeah, I mean, Ross is a possibility. It's – yeah. Well, we don't play him unless he's fit, though, I don't think. Um, no. 100%. And then Sharman would be the other consideration. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean how, many, how many players that we actually have, I guess, available that didn't play on the weekend? It was what, probably about six or so. Well, that, if um, we, at the moment, we'd have 15 on the injury list. So that would give us, what, 28, 29 players, maybe? Approximately, yeah. So and, yeah. And out of them, you sort of look and going, okay, which, which ones are really going to push to get a game. Um, Campbell, Sharman, yeah. Um, possibly, yeah. Uh, it yeah. Is, we're not really missing, I guess, yeah. we're not we're not missing any top-end no. best 22 yeah. players. 
who are available coming back um, this week. It's it's you sort of look okay. Last week worked. We we might have to do a similar sort of thing. Just we we're playing a different team, but this week we've got an opportunity. Hopefully, Kamenidi might get a bit more um, up up forward. He might see a bit more of the ball up there. I mean, for what he did on the weekend, he played played quite well. He made the position. Yeah. He 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 presented. He made the contest. He it'd just be nice to see him clunk a few like we saw him in the in the practice games. Um, but the little handball down for the goal assist that that was great. I mean, I, I was I think there was a hand just on it before he got to it. But mm-hmm. um, it, it looked in like situations, he it. Yeah. in situations we've seen that paid. Yeah. Um, mm. So he, he he deserved the goal. So hopefully this week he well hopefully he kicks six. That'd be good. Um, but yeah, it'd be a, it'd, he's probably only playing on Bruce, so I don't see why not. Yeah, well, if he <laughs> kick ten then that'd be great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't be thinking there's going to be a lot of change apart from those couple that you've said, um, with the possibility of Seb Ross, um, and whether if he's fully fit, does he come straight in or is he, has he become possibly the sub? That's, it's, it's a tactical sub now when you look at it, it's not, it doesn't get forced by injury. So it gives you a bit, few more opportunities, I guess, to, and I guess those older impact players might actually get used for that a little bit more than, yeah, whatever what they previously did. So, well, well interesting to see. But uh, yeah, just saying, don't see being much more than what what you suggested already. And Nick, before we get into the awards, uh, any positional stuff that sort of stands out to you? Um, Obviously, Rory lobs out for for them, which takes one tall away, which helps, and he would have racked mm. a little bit. But um, we know they'll play Darcy Norton and Eugle Hagen forward. I sense they'll keep Bruce back because their defence has been a weakness. But um, how would you match yep. up on some of them? It's a, it's a really really interesting one because the outside of Tim English, they don't really have a ruckman. Even when Rory lobs in the team, he he doesn't want a ruck. It's one of the reasons he went to the Bulldogs was because Freo were using him as that second ruck and he didn't want to be that. He wants to be a, a you know, key forward 100% of the time. So, yeah, I'm not sure how much of, of the game he spent in the ruck but, uh, last week, but um, he certainly doesn't want to play that role. So, Rowan Marshall has a bit of a history against Tim English of just taking him to the cleaners and, you know, he's a bigger body. Um, Tim English is a really good runner, um, but so is Rowan Marshall. And, and I think that, um, you know, going one out, Rowan Marshall against Tim English could be a really good option there to, to allow some more versatility around the ground and, and potentially bring in another runner. I mean, we know Windhager's coming in. Uh, Seb Ross is, is the potential, like you mentioned. Leo Connolly's an, an interesting one. I'd love to see him come back in, especially on the fast turf at, at Marvel on a Saturday night. I think he's kind of a, a, an ideal player. And, you know, we've kind of mentioned it before that, that I feel like he could really grab hold of that Jason Graham role mm. under a, a Ross Lyon team and, and rebound our defense, kick long, take some risks. You're going to, you know, you're going to shit your pants occasionally <laughs> and, and make some mistakes, but you know, you, you need some players who are going to take the game on at times. And he kind of plays with no fear, which is great. And there aren't many of us of, of our squad who do that. Um, and I think that he could be a, a potential in, it just depends what's his head like, what's his fitness like. We saw him at training uh, a week ago and he looked pretty good so you know whether he's got enough in the tank to to kind of come out in, in the ones I'm, I'm not sure but um he'd be an interesting one obviously the ones that that you mentioned um shaman 
you know, there's, there's just question marks around guys like Sharman and Highmore about, you know, what role do they play in this team? Um, you know, what is their purpose? I'd love to see Sharman get another go. I think that I, I would prefer him to someone like a Cordy. Uh, I'd prefer a Campbell to Cordy if we're going to play two rucks or, or whatever. But um, look, I, like you said, I don't think that there's too many changes. Windhager in is the obvious one that's already been announced. Um, there's going to have to be some sort of cha- change, you know, whether it's Patton comes into the mm. into the starting lineup and someone else comes in the sub or, or you know, someone like a Ross comes in. But like you said, I, I don't think there are going to be too many changes. Unless Butler starts as a sub potentially, because he could work in that role conceivably as an impact player coming on fresh. And Patton did a very good job actually coming on fresh. He, he performed what we needed him to do as a sub. So credit to him for, for that. But yeah, obviously it's going to be another challenge, but that they've shown they've, they've got buy-in and they're up for the fight. And, and if they bring that intensity, we're going to take some beating. So we'll have a look at that. Um, obviously this Saturday night, but our awards, as I um, draw a momentary blank and try to remember what they are, we'll start with the uh, the Jason Blake <laughs> Award, uh, which we almost renamed the Mason Wood Award. But I'll probably go with the guy I just mentioned before in, in uh, Nasai Wanganin Miller. Um, I thought he... Battled a bit early, left his man a couple of times and created some problems for us defensively where he was just a little bit too attacking. And then a couple of times he, he took some risks with kicks, which you want him to do, and they didn't come off. But then after half time, he was very effective. So um, I think in, in a very even performance, I actually liked his composure late in the piece for mine. So he gets a, a bit of a tick as our first pick from last year, who looks like he's coming along okay. But Nick, um, who was yours? Yeah, a bit of an interesting one because he's been, a, I guess, a mainstay of the team for a couple of years now and, and has been a veteran AFL player for a, a decade or more. But Brad Crouch, mm-hmm. I think, doesn't get the plaudits that he deserves. H, you mentioned it uh, in your votes that he just does it week after week after week. He just racks them up and he doesn't seem to get the credit that, that he deserves. Um, and so I'm going to go a little, little bit out of left field. I think someone who, who potentially could be in line for some votes this year in, in this award could be someone like Orion Burns um, as, as he potentially continues to come through the the ranks and, and get more game time. He's never really had that consistency to be able to do that, um, you know, multiple games in a row. But I think Brad Crouch deserves more credit than he gets for the, the performance that the performances that he puts up week after week after week um, that are just at a very high level. And, you know, he does all those little things that they're not flashy, that is not an X factor, but he does the things that you need someone in the clinches to do, win the ball and get it out to, to the guys running past, um, and he does it very well. Yeah, I, I, I have to mention the other player that Parker and I, uh, mentioned was um, Ben Patton. I, mm. How The job he came on and did, like, it, it wouldn't be easy being named sub, sitting there watching the game, just just being a lot, just not in the actual game itself. But then he stepped out and he stood up. And for the time he had and the job he did, I, I think he had a really good impact on the game, and it, he a few of the things he did, I felt like it actually turned the game our way in a couple of moments. Um, it, it obviously wasn't on the field for a long time, but the time he was on had a really good impact and gave us gave us something really good down back, and he, he probably deserves to be in the starting twenty two this week coming. So, um, yeah, I think. He's he's probably I hoping one that Ross is going to really enjoy playing 
out there on the field because I, I think he he's going to be one that gives us a, gives us his all um, and probably deserved more than yeah as starting as sub on the weekend. The Shannon Knoll Award, a little tricky this week. There's probably an obvious one that'll be be mentioned there. I'm actually going to stay away completely from our list. Um, I would have gone with someone like Sharman if I did, but the time of recording this podcast now, um, just going completely off topic, um, there was an opinion piece written in the age by age opinion editor by the name of Patrick O'Neill. Now he's written a piece about the challenges of taking his child to the football to watch the team lose every week and try. And his son basically asked him the question of, are we ever going to win? Are we any good? And he goes, I don't want to lie to my son. And he's talking about the challenges of trying to talk to your son about your football team being no good and how difficult that is. Do you want to know who this asshole barracks for? Hawthorne. (laughs) Give me a spell. So he's got an eight-year-old son who claims hasn't seen Hawthorne win live or hasn't seen them win since he was five years of age. Does anybody have the world's smallest violin for for these people? (laughs) They won three flags in a row in 2013, 14, and 15. Someone actually saw fit to put that in the paper that someone has to explain to a Hawthorne supporter that their team is no good. That's, yeah, that's garbage. Anyway. That's that's very good from you. I like that. I like that a lot. Oh, Christ. Anyone got one? Just going back to the, the, I guess, the the standard conversation, I think I'm going to go with the standard answer Mm. for this one. It's got to be Jade Gresham. Mm. It's Jade Gresham. He's he's got a lift. He's got got the talent. But there are so many brain fades and so many things that he does so poorly, just dumb decision-making and poor execution, when if he just took an extra second to have a little think about it, that he could be a very, very good AFL player. And right now he's just an AFL player. Yeah. H? Um, I think the easy one to pick off this week is the first player subbed out by Ross mm-hmm. tactically, mm-hmm. Dan Butler. Um, I, don't know how many, I don't yeah. know how many chances you're going to get. <laughs> you're not going to get the same chances you had under Ratten. Spot on. That yep. is, if you're not performing when we've got all our players back, you are not playing. It is as simple as that. Um, and if he plays this week, you almost go, you've got to play well. You've got to do what's asked of you. If 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 you're not doing the right thing, I mean, yes, the tactical sub may have been a bit, um, let's change how the, the structure is, but he was the player picked to be taken off. And that is where you've got to, he's got to look at himself and go, I was the one who didn't fit in. So if you get the chance, he has got to take it. And and Nick, good point on, on Gresham. And I think we saw on the weekend where he's kind of at his best. Like he's a great clearance player, but obviously doesn't use it well. There was that one where he slaughtered it going inside 50 when Mason Wood was running into an open goal. But uh, when he got that front and centre in the last quarter and kicked the goal, there's hardly anyone better at that. He mm. reads it so well off hands in the forward line and never misses when he's in that position. So I've uh, just lost Nick for a second there. Hopefully uh, yeah. he re-emerges with us very shortly. Just just yeah. left. <laughs> yeah, just exited the building. Um, yeah, so hopefully he'll be back with us very shortly. Um, 
looking at that so St Kilda, I guess the obvious one for me was, as you just said, H, the sub situation where we made a substitution, a tactical substitution, and then within 30 seconds had a player go down injured, which is uh, very typical of us that 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 would happen, that Jimmy Webster goes down and uh, when we would have used the sub for legitimate reasons. So um, it was obvious that that was going to happen, but um, I'm sure there's plenty to choose from this week, Nick. Yeah, there's there's a couple. There's a couple. And one that I, I wanted to, I guess, change tack a little bit. We've talked about Dan Butler and his Shannon Knoll award and, and all those sorts of things. Jack Higgins is a really interesting one uh, in that it does feel like he's made changes in this very short time. You know, he was doing more chasing and tackling and doing those one percenters and putting his body there and getting into the right spots and you know, a bunch of these things that have been a, you know, I guess a little bit of a weak point in terms of the, the defensive effort and that sort of stuff for, for Higgins over the years. And uh, a friend of this show, Phil Daladakis, called me the other day and said, you know what makes a lot of sense is that Jack Higgins grew up as a Kilda supporter, watching Ross Lyon teams, knows the story about Ross dropping Stephen Mill. He knows the story about Ross dropping Nick Del Santo. And if you don't do these things, then you're going to be dropped too. And it looks like Jack Higgins has really kind of taken that knowledge uh, and understanding of being a Saints fan under under Ross to heart and has started doing those things that are really important to, to Ross and his uh, lineups and his structures. And um, a little bit of reverse, that's so St Kilda for, for this week for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I was going to flip it around a little bit myself. Um, mm. Just I'm hoping this is going to be a continual thing, but let's hope that's so St Kilda is Ross keeping teams to seven goals. Because <laughs> that we will win more games than we lose if we're able to do that same thing week in, week out. Because, I mean, we don't think he's going to stick completely to that sort of game plan anymore. But at the same time, as as we know... Back in the day, we kept teams to low scores, but we we scored reasonably well ourselves. So it's basically, it looks like we could be starting from the back again and working our way up. And yeah, if we can, as we say, manage to keep teams down to reasonable scores and keep this back six healthy and working well together, we we could be going pretty well so let's let's hopefully we can back it up again this week and and yeah throughout the rest of the season i just want to say before we get into i guess the end of the show and some of the listener questions from from socials that we've gone an entire episode of unplugged this week without mentioning yeah. Matthias filippo yeah yeah it's a it's a good point i was thinking that earlier that um where do we slot him in but um yeah, maybe that's just, just acknowledging that and keeping a lid on things and saying, yep, well done, son. Um, <laughs> more of that, please. That would be that nice. That would be very nice. It was a very good day, Boo. Yeah. yeah. yeah very nice. Maybe we'll, we'll do shots until he gets the nod to the rising <laughs> star. We'll... Yeah, it, obviously that was all over as soon as Sheasel had 4,000 possessions. But yeah. um, <laughs> obviously it was a, a – um, hopefully his time does come sooner rather than later. Just, um, wanted to, to, just, just, on those, while, yeah. just while we're on that very quickly, wanted to, to raise his kicking action for goal. I mean, mm. you look back mm. at the great full forwards with the best kicking actions. You look at Plugger and Dunstall and, and those guys, Wayne Carey even, and just completely still walking into, into goal, walking directly at goal as a drop punt. Uh, the ball is still head over the ball, ball head over the ball. Yep. all those things, and then follow through, like the foot going straight up in the air, 
I mean, it was just beautiful to watch. It's like poetry. And you wonder why yeah. so many people have so much trouble with it. Hmm. Just and he's simple. Poised, That's all yeah. it was. And he's, he's poised to even like a couple of times, just wrong footing guys. And the time he has, he looks pretty comfortable. And obviously we know he's confident. And yeah, there was never much doubt he was going to kick that goal really as he was, as he was walking. Youngest, yeah, youngest exactly. player in the draft four days, yeah. four days later. Yeah. Uh, his birthday wouldn't have been drafted, wouldn't have been eligible. So, hmm. you know, it's pretty impressive. Uh, and just on those listener questions, I think we've addressed most of them, but uh, Tim Dole was, was asking the question in regards to Gresham potentially playing more forward um, and obviously the balance between Higgins and Butler, if one of them had to go and, and Butler being that, Joshua Hearn says, does Gresham look way better as a small forward? Yes, he does. Uh Luke spoke about Tom Highmore and, and Nicky spoke a little bit about the question marks on his place in the side. Um, Discount Dracula asking about the prospect of having to forfeit a game due to injuries, but also about Leo Connolly, who you mentioned, and um, Greg talking about whether we needed to pick an extra tall like Sharman or Highmore as a sub. I think there's a chance Sharman could be a sub. I would think he's played at both ends. Uh, I think that's a possibility, whereas Highmore's more just a defensive player, whereas Sharman could conceivably do either. So that might be the, the way to go there. The move um, might be just to, to push Cordy back mm. further. Um, yeah, and, and potentially. Uh, and then play Sharman Correct, forward or yeah. something. Or Wood forward yeah. and, and pick another wingman like Connolly or, or something. But we'll see what they do. Um, obviously, that's been our first episode in the can or round one episode in the can. Thank you to, uh, to Gary Colling for joining us. We look ahead to the Bulldogs on Saturday night. We can make that... Uh, our fortress once again. Two and zip would be one of the more remarkable efforts if we can pull that off against two sides that made the eight last year with our injury list. And you know what? It is distinctly possible. And as we sign off, I got to work uh, a couple of days ago and had someone come up to me and go, oh, gee, I guess St Kilda are boring again. Yes, but isn't it fantastic? Fantastic.